genealogy is rather unique. But at first, if you were to go and read Matthew's genealogy, there's an awful lot of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And they can sound rather boring. But Matthew begins, and he tells us right away the basic purpose of his genealogy in verse 1 when he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. At the very beginning, what we discover here is that Matthew is, is teaching us through this genealogy about Jesus to very important things about God. The first thing he's teaching us is that God always keeps his promises. By virtue of the fact that Matthew begins and roots Jesus' life history, his family, going back to David and then to Abraham, highlights for us two of the most central promises that God makes in all of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, it is through you, through your family, through your offspring, that I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And in David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David, the man after God's own heart, the king of God's people, there will always be a king on the throne of David. And so to begin his story, Matthew's gospel, this way, he is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of those two great promises. And he's telling us that God keeps his promise, and he has kept his promise in sending Jesus. But what we also notice here in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, as we transition into looking at Genesis chapter 38, is that Matthew's genealogy is broken up into three sections of 14 generations each. There's commentators talk about that all the time. The main point you need to understand is not only does God keep his promises, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time for those promises to be fulfilled. And in fact, as often as not, more often than not, those promises take a course in history that you would perhaps not even expect. That God's promises don't often look like he's keeping his promises, but often may feel like and sound like and look like those promises have ceased to have any sway at all. So right at the very beginning, Matthew is telling us about these, that God keeps his promises, but at the very same time, the way in which he keeps his promises often don't look like what we would expect. And this gets played out especially in Matthew's genealogy. Because ordinarily in the ancient Near East in the first century, a genealogy only ever included grandfathers and fathers. Because in the estimation of many at the time, those are the only people that mattered in your family line. It was who your father was and who your grandfather was, who your great-grandfather was. That's how you knew who you were. But Matthew breaks 
from convention here. And he includes five women in Jesus' genealogy. And we're going to call these women the five women of Christmas. We're going to spend the next five weeks looking at these five women. But not only that, does he break convention and include these women, he doesn't include the women that you would expect. He doesn't include the matriarchs in the Bible, like Sarah, Abraham's wife. He doesn't include uh, Rachel, Isaac's wife, or Rebecca. He doesn't include Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives. No, he includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. In verse 6, the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, and Mary. And in some way or another, all five of these women have, have at best an ambiguous background. They have a story that is socially unacceptable in many ways, in many levels. And yet, they are included in Jesus' genealogy. They're part of his story. And so at the very beginning of the story about the birth of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus tells us, wow, this Jesus, he is connected to every kind of person. There is no one who falls outside of this guy's story. What we begin to see here is that Jesus isn't, hasn't come for the people you would most expect, but he's come for the people you would least expect. And so we're going to start tonight by looking at the story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. And we're, going to, we're going to look at Tamar's predicament, her trap, and her legacy. Tamar's predicament, her trap, and her legacy you know, verse 11, where we picked up in the story, really orients us to uh, the situation that, Ju- that Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, who is Judah? In order to gain some perspective, we need to do a little bit of background story. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. He is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He becomes one of the central tribes in the people of Israel. But Judah, at this point in the story, in chapter 38, uh, if we back up into chapter 37, chapter 37 is really the beginning of Jacob's story, of his family. And from chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis is dominated by Joseph, one of Jacob's youngest sons, Joseph. And in in chapter 37, we begin to discover something about Judah. Judah is a cold, calloused, calculating man. We learned this earlier when he and his brothers, who hate Joseph, their youngest brother, because he is Jacob's favorite. He has the coat of many colors. They hate him because... He's their father's favorite, and they're not. But they also hate him because he's insufferable. He comes to them with these dreams that he's had and essentially says on more than one occasion, you all are going to bow down and serve me. 
And so, Judah, along with all those brothers, are sick of it. And one of them decides, hey, let's kill him. Let's just get rid of him. And Judah, in his cold, calculating way, says, I have a better plan. Let's sell him. Let's make a profit off of Joseph. Not only that, we we can sell him for money. We'll never have to deal with him again. And I have a plan in order to deceive our father and convince him that, in fact, his beloved son Joseph is dead. That's in chapter 37. That's the Judah we know of when we pick up in chapter 38. And not only is he this cold, calculating man, he also wants nothing to do with his family. He, in chapter 38, verse 1, he leaves his family. He leaves his family and, as a result, also leaves all of God's promises and instead chooses to go live in in Canaan, a Canaanite city. He chooses the company of a Canaanite friend. And he finds for himself a Canaanite wife. These are all indicators that Judah has turned his back on his family. And he has forsaken his God. And so he settles in this town of Adullam. And his best friend Hira appears three different times. And he finds for himself a Canaanite wife and he builds a family. He has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And in order to understand the predicament that Tamar is in, we need to, to, to know what happens here. Once Ur, Judah's oldest son, it becomes old enough to marry. Judah finds him a wife. And this is when Tamar enters into the story. Tamar herself is a Canaanite woman from presumably their hometown. But as you look in verse 7, uh, it's very quick and short with very little explanation. Ur dies on account of his wickedness. And in that time and place, in that culture, if you were the brother, if you had a brother and, and your brother's wife died, it was your responsibility to take your dead brother's wife as your own wife. And to have children with her. And the child that would be born would not really technically be yours. But that child would technically be your dead brother's child. And in this case, Judah tells Onan, his second son, to go and perform this duty to his sister-in-law. But Onan understands That if he does carry out this responsibility, and Tamar has a son by him, that he will no longer get the double portion of his father's inheritance, but Tamar's son will. And so his greed and his selfishness lead him to abuse Tamar, to take advantage of her for his own pleasure, to treat her as an object but not to care for her and love her as he should. And as a result, God sees this and Onan dies on account of his wickedness. And at this point in the story, Judah has one son left, Shelah. And he isn't of marriageable age yet. 
And he begins to suspect that perhaps Tamar is the one who's at fault for the death of his two older sons. And therefore, Judah, not wanting to lose his third son, he, he realizes there's, there's maybe a little loophole here, a window of opportunity where he can rid himself of Judah and still, of Tamar and still save face and ensure that Shelah doesn't die too. And so he says to her, go home, go to your father's house and remain a widow in your father's house. Let him take care of you. And when Sheila grows up, I'll send him to you and you guys can get married. And so Tamar heads home. And what's striking about this, Judah doesn't even call her by her first name. Judah treats her more like an object than a human being full of dignity and worth. She's in a bind. She's in a predicament because she's essentially been betrothed to Sheila and yet has been sent home. And as we notice in verse, in verse 9, or actually in, in, uh, yeah, in verse, nine, verse 11, we discover that Judah has no intention of ever giving Sheila to Tamar. And this is how Judah gets rid of her. She's now in a situation where she has no future, she has no opportunity, she has no way out. She's a widow in her father's house, sent home to experience the social disgrace of having not just lost one husband, but two with no foreseeable change of circumstances on the horizon. That's her predicament. Now, before we move on to her trap, let's think for a moment about what Matthew is telling us by including this story in Jesus' genealogy. I don't know, some of you I'm getting to know more as time goes on, longer I'm here, but I think it's very safe to say that I don't know what your family is like. I don't know if there are people in your family who have hurt you or belittled you or even refused to speak to you. I don't know if there are people in your family that embarrass you or manipulate you. I don't know what flavor of brokenness or dysfunction you might uh, use to label your family. But my guess is at some point, either in the past week or in the weeks to come, you may, you may have all of that renewed and refreshed. The brokenness and dysfunction of your family may come in, may come crashing in in new ways, maybe in painful ways. And by including this story in Jesus' story, Matthew is telling us that no matter how painful or difficult your family situation may be, Jesus' story offers comfort and hope. You see, Jesus comes from a broken family, a dysfunctional family. Jesus comes from a family that's full of adulterers, liars, cheats, His family is full of marital strife, 
sibling rivalry, in-law dynamics. It's full of greed, selfishness, and rejection. You see, Jesus, his story offers us comfort because as we enter into his story, we discover again and again how much we have in common with him. The closer you pay attention to this story, the more you begin to see how much you have in common with him. But not only does it offer comfort, it offers hope. Jesus' story teaches us that no amount of brokenness or dysfunction can disqualify us from participating in God's larger purposes in the world. No amount of brokenness and dysfunction can stop him from all that he might want to do in you and through you. So that's Judah, Tamar's predicament. But what about Tamar's trap? As we continue to move on through the story, remember, Judah has sent her home uh, to remain as a widow with a promise that he will send Shelah to be her husband in due course. But now she begins to realize that she has been deceived, that Judah never intended to give Shelah to her in marriage. And given what we already know about Judah, that doesn't come as a surprise to us as the readers of the story. But for Tamar, as a woman with no future apart from Judah's family, she comes up with a plan, a scheme, a trap, a trap to deceive her father-in-law by playing the role of a prostitute, to seduce him into having a son who will be raised in Judah's family despite Judah's best efforts to have nothing to do with Tamar and to prevent that from happening. So, how does this all unfold? That's her plan, to, to deceive her father-in-law in order to have a child by him because he will not honor his word to her. So, shortly thereafter in verse 12, we notice that Judah's wife has died and it's also the time of sheep shearing. Now, sheep shearing, uh, I'm sure is familiar for most of us, but sheep shearing in the ancient Near East was really a festival time. It was a time, it was a big party. And I suppose one of the best uh, modern uh, analogs to that would be think tailgating. That's probably about what sheep shearing was. I don't know a whole lot more about the details of sheep shearing other than it was a big festival, a big party. And Judah, with his friend Hira, they're heading up to this party. And Tamar hears about it. She discovers that he is heading up to this sheep shearing, and so now she begins to work her plan. She removes her widow's clothing and dresses up like a prostitute takes her place along the side of the road and waits for her father-in-law to come by. And some suggest that Judah has already begun partying on the way and sees a prostitute who is available and takes the bait, having no idea that this is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And so he comes to her and 
asks to come into her. And Tamar says, well, what will you pay me? And he says, I'll send you a goat. Doesn't have anything to pay her on the spot. But not only is she cunningly deceptive, she's also very shrewd. And she says to to Judah, okay, I'll accept that, but only if you give me a pledge of your payment. And Judah says, well, what pledge should I give you? And she says to him, I want you to give me your, your signet, your cord, and your staff. Now, what are these things? The signet would have been a, a, a relatively small cylinder that had engraved on it markings that were unique to Judah. And it would have hung on a cord around his neck. And his staff would have been, as you might imagine, a fairly long piece of wood. But on the top of it, there would have been also distinctive markings. It was staff was a, a symbol of social standing, of power and authority. And on the top of it would have indicated who that staff belonged to. In our current day, these items would have been the equivalent of handing over your driver's license and your credit cards. And Judah agrees. He says, yes, I'll give you these things. And the story unfolds. Tamar becomes pregnant by by Judah. But before that becomes known, she goes back home to her father's house. And about three months later, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he says to her, without any questioning, any investigation at all, she needs to be burned. Bring her out and burn her. And even as she's coming out, Tamar sends a message to her father-in-law and says to him, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify these things, whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And at that moment, Judah realizes what's happened. He realizes that Tamar was that prostitute. He realizes how he has wronged her. And then he says, he confesses, she is more righteous than I. Now, this is quite a story. And what are we supposed to do with stories like this? Because this is not the only one in the Bible. In fact, to be honest with you, uh, maybe with the exception of Mary, the rest of the stories we'll look at this December are like this one. They're full of disobedience and deception in almost every line of selfishness and greed. See, stories like this that actually, I think, teach us how to read the Bible. What what do I mean by that? You see, if you read the Bible as a moral guidebook of how to live, of how to be a good person, you will either ignore these stories entirely or you will twist them to mean something that they simply don't mean. There is the immorality and disobedience and deception here is pervasive. The best that you can say about Tamar is that she's not as bad as Judah. But there's nothing in this story that should lead us to defend their actions. 
And why not? Because stories like this help to show us and teach us that the Bible is not primarily about us and our moral successes and failures. The Bible is primarily about God and how he works through human disobedience and deception to accomplish his good purposes. You see, if you forget that, it's very hard to read these stories and make any sense of them. But if, in reading these stories, we remember that they are first and foremost about God, and a God who works in the midst of human failure, human deception, human greed and disobedience, all of a sudden these stories are injected with hope, with life, with promise that's bigger than you. See, what this story teaches us is not even human disobedience and deception can thwart God's purposes, which brings us to Tamar's legacy. We've seen Tamar's predicament and her trap. But what about her legacy? Remember here at the very end when Judah realizes what has happened and he confesses that she is more righteous than I. You see, God works in Tamar and through Tamar to bring about a transformation in Judah's life which plays itself out throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. At first, we saw Judah as this cold, calculating figure with no concern for his brothers, no concern for his family, no honor towards his father. But here, he's cut to the heart. He realizes what he's really like. And as the story unfolds in the book of Genesis... Judah actually becomes the one who's willing, when faced with his brother Joseph, who's in Egypt, the the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, when he's faced with Joseph's request and demand that his youngest brother Benjamin stay with him and that Judah and all of his other brothers go home, Judah says this time, no, I will take his place. Please don't grieve my father by keeping his son Benjamin. Let me stand in his place. Very different Judah than the one who wanted to sell Joseph for a prophet. And not only that, towards the end of the book of Genesis, Judah is the one who receives Jacob's greatest blessing. When Jacob says to Judah, the scepter shall never depart from Judah. Which is another way of saying that Judah's line, his family, will be a kingdom that will never end. And this is Tamar's legacy. See, Judah's legacy, Judah's family, will not come, will not continue through Shelah, but through Perez, the son that is born through Tamar. And therefore, Tamar is written into the very story of the Messiah. Tamar's son Perez becomes the forefather of King David, who is then the forefather of the King of Kings, Jesus himself. And what is perhaps even more remarkable about Tamar's legacy, as significant as she is in this story, she's even 
the, the hero of the story, certainly over Judah, she's also a picture of the gospel. Think about this for a moment. What happens in this story is that the person who is the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most powerless, becomes the person through whom blessing comes to others. It's a clue to how the gospel works. And if you begin to to get eyes for that, you see it all over the Bible. That again and again, it isn't the firstborn who receives the inheritance. It's the secondborn. Again and again, God overturns how things ordinarily work. Until we come to the cross of Jesus, a picture of scorn and shame and rejection and humiliation, that very event becomes the greatest means by which God blesses the peoples of the earth. The very means by which God brings about transformation in the lives of men and women, boys and girls, across the globe and throughout history, who left to themselves are cold, calculating, deceptive, conniving, greedy. Remember where we began, looking at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew's genealogy. That what we are being told in this story is that God's God's commitment to keep his promises to us is found in Jesus. And at every point along the way, we need to learn to look for how God works through the least, the most unexpected, unusual power, most weak people. And as we do so, we begin to see that throughout the scriptures, this is how God works. This is the, these, Tamar is the first of the five women of Christmas. And again and again, we're going to see this pattern. That when we talk about and we remember the birth of Jesus, it is far from sterile. It's far from most of the Hallmark cards that you will ever see. This is a long ways from sentimentality and emotionalism. This is a story about God getting dirty. God getting personally involved in all that is broken and dysfunctional and wrong about the world in which we live and the hearts that we have because he has beautiful things to give. He has blessings to pour out on all those who would trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we look at these stories, these five women of of Jesus' story, we ask that you would open up to us the reality and truth and uh, rawness and the vividness of this very familiar story of the birth of Jesus, of the coming of the Messiah, 
we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear your commitment to keep all of your promises. And we pray for the grace and the patience and humility to trust you, to carry out your word, to accomplish your promises in our lives and for your world, in your time and in your way. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.